This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. More than 40 years have passed since the end of America's war in Vietnam. Even so, countless Americans still remember the shock they felt when they first saw the girl in the picture. But that photo is just the beginning of a remarkable personal journey, as we'll be hearing from Jane Pauley. A little girl screaming in pain from the napalm burning her body, an unforgettable image that helped end a war. Did you ever wonder what happened to that little girl? I can't imagine how much closer to death a person could be. Right. Well, she's come very far since that terrible day, and we'll meet her ahead on Sunday morning. Jack the Ripper was the notorious murderer who terrorized London more than a century ago. The search for clues as to his identity goes on. And this morning, Lee Cowan joins the hunt. There are perhaps few places quite as spooky as the cobblestone streets of East London in the dark. Every night of the week, we're busy. (laughs) This Halloween week, why the city's most famous villain, Jack the Ripper, still sends chills. Because we don't know the killer, I think that's the, the mystery is still with us. The enduring and disturbing tale of Jack the Ripper, ahead on Sunday morning. Martha Teichner has a portrait of the artist John Singer Sargent. Faith Saley 
has some thoughts on presidential candidate Donald Trump. Steve Hartman is off to the races. But first, meet the girl in the picture. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Anyone who lived through the Vietnam War remembers the girl in the picture. The picture captures a terrible moment while also raising a poignant question. The question Jane Pauley sets out to answer in our Sunday morning cover story. A little girl screaming in pain, trying to outrun the napalm burning her body. An image seared into our consciousness still. The horrors of war visited upon an innocent child. Did you ever wonder what happened to that little girl? You can call me Kim or Kim Fu. Now I'm 52. So 43 years ago that I got burned was the day that defined the rest of your life. Yeah, that day. 21-year-old Nick Oot, a Vietnamese photographer, was also there that day on assignment for the Associated Press. I look at my camera, you find her. I shot the girl naked running. He took the picture that would win the Pulitzer Prize. And when she passed my camera, I saw her body burn so badly. I said, my God, I need to help her. So they tried to help me. But after they pouring water over my body, it seemed like I passed out. I didn't remember anything else. He wrapped her in a soldier's rain poncho. I don't want to see the picture of her naked. I cover her. Yes. And she keeps screaming, saying, I'm dying, I'm dying, all the time. He took her to the hospital, where the doctors thought she was dying, too. They placed me to the morgue because they give up hope. And uh, they consider I have no way to survive. They decided this one isn't going to make it. Exactly. So they that you I were mean. written off. Yes. Her family found her three days later still alive, but barely. I can't imagine how much closer to death and, uh, a person could be. Right. But after 14 months and 17 operations, she did make it. When I, I heard that, I said, wow, God not finished with me yet. <laughs> At the time, Kim didn't feel like part of God's plan. Only a little girl so horribly disfigured, who would ever marry her? At nine years old, I remember, I thought, oh my goodness. I got burned, and I became ugly, and people will see me different way. So she dreamed of becoming a doctor, and at 19 started medical school. But the picture caught up with her. The Vietnamese government found a national treasure and a propaganda tool. So they started to uh, take me out to do a lot of interview filming. The late CBS News correspondent Bob Simon talked to her in 1985. She has glandular problems, headaches, and loss of memory. She wanted to study medicine, but had to give it up because of her health. I didn't know what's going on, but I know that I couldn't go to school. That was a low point in my life. I became another kind of victim over again. 
and it built me up with hatred, bitterness, and anger. When she could, she escaped to the library to read. I just want simply to find a purpose for my life. Why am I still alive? And at the library, she found an answer. Among the book I read is the Bible, New Testament. That is an amazing turning point in my life. When I, I became Christian, I have so much peace in my heart. I just trust that God will open the door for me. By luck, she was introduced to Vietnam's prime minister and told him that because of all those interviews, she couldn't study anymore. When I met him for the first time, I told him all my story. You tell the truth to the prime minister. <laughs> yes, and I say, why they did that to you? I will help you. And he did. She was sent to the University of Havana with other Vietnamese students. And there, the girl who thought she was too ugly to be loved found the husband she thought she'd never have. You know what she calls you? Um, she calls me sometimes as perfect. My name means perfect, but I'm not perfect. <laughs> His name is Tuan. They married in Havana and honeymooned in Moscow. But on the flight back to Cuba, her journey took yet another amazing turn. Kim told her new husband she had a different destination in mind. It's a refueling stop. You've stopped in Newfoundland, Canada, and you're plotting yes. to get off that plane and not get back on it. How did you tell your husband what the plan was? I just explained so simple. I need and I really seeking for freedom. I said no. I was in shock. I said that Kim is impossible for me to stay. But her mind was made up. She said that, Tuan, I really need you. So if I stay alone, I don't know if I can survive. I said, okay, whatever you want, I do. And you said yes, and you got off the plane and did not get back on it. Yeah. In Canada, she was free to start a family and live a nearly normal life. But once again, the picture caught up with her. Only this time, she embraced it. I realized that that picture is a powerful gift for me. A gift that led to a foundation to help children of war. She now travels the world as a UNESCO goodwill ambassador. I share with the people how horrible war it is, how much people suffer, and I was one of them. Kim um, suffered a lot of pain, I can say, um, almost every day. Almost every day for 43 years. When serious burns heal, the scarring isn't merely disfiguring. It can cause lifelong agony. So how do you deal with the pain? Wow, I prayed and I set up my mind that I never, never concentrate on my pain. When the pain comes to me, I try to distract my mind by doing something 
go out for a walk, or talk on the phone, or singing a song. She now turns to her faith, but still I sometimes can't. she despairs. I hated my life, but uh, I cannot wait to go to heaven <laughs> to enjoy that no scar, no pain. And then, by chance, she learned there might be a way to live without pain. I shared my story at the church, and one gentleman came to me, and he said, Kim, I have a, a daughter-in-law. She really helped people who got burned. Maybe you try to see her to relieve your pain. And so I said, yes. I will. Nice How to see you. you. Nice to nice see, to see, you. see you. you. I know. I feel the same oh. way. Dr. Jill Weibel is pioneering a new treatment for burns. We'll be fine. Thank you. And last month, Kim Fook went to Miami for the first in a series of laser treatments. So see the little holes? And it goes all the way through to the other side. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for everything you have done for us. So this is the top of Kim's skin, and this is how deep her scar is. What we know about scars is they're all wrong. It's just chaotic healing. So we're going to take out teeny pieces of skin with this fractional laser and then allow the body to heal it almost to normal. Say goodbye, scars. Scars. <laughs> Even with pain medication, the procedure can be difficult. You can do this. You're strong. Tuan was there to hold Kim's hand. And AP photographer Nick Oot, who's grown to be a lifelong friend, was there this day too to document what may be the first chapter in a new life for the girl in the picture. It's the finest service you can get. Ahead. It's an easier trip from the moment you call. Up. Up and away. Plane from New York and the East arriving 420 on time. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. October 25th, 1930, 85 years ago today. The day transcontinental and western air inaugurated America's first coast-to-coast -coast passenger air service. New York to Los Angeles in 36 hours with an overnight stopover in Kansas City. An airline with a prestigious link to Charles Lindbergh, TWA gained added cachet in 1939 when aviation mogul Howard Hughes acquired control. Hughes expanded TWA's reach overseas, changing its name to Transworld Airlines in 1950. Its speed with a full load, 57 passengers, is over 300 miles an hour. TWA was a jewel of air travel's golden age, a symbol of in-flight glamour and style. It's the finest service you can get. It's an easier trip from the moment you call on the one big airline that does it all. That glamour reached its peak in 1962 with the opening of its new terminal at New York's Idlewild Airport, as JFK was known. Designed by the renowned Finnish architect Eero Saarinen, TWA's building looked from the outside like a bird with outstretched wings in flight. 
Well, on the inside, Saarinen's futuristic design captured the optimism and excitement of the space age. Sadly, it was not to last. The changing air travel marketplace and contentious ownership and labor battles helped to send TWA on a downward course. American Airlines took over what was left in 2001, and its fabled New York terminal was closed. Now, after years in limbo, the building is on track to spread its wings again, reimagined as an airport hotel. It's expected to open in 2018. Just ahead... This became a scandal. A portrait of painter John Singer Sargent. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A portrait of the artist is a doubly meaningful phrase when the artist in question was himself a master of the portrait, as Martha Teichner now shows us. Her name was Virginie Gautreaux. But scandal turned her forever into Madame X. And just about did in the career of 28-year-old John Singer Sargent when he exhibited her in 1884 and shocked Paris with her provocative pose. The great story behind this painting is that in the original version, he accentuated her sensuality even more by dropping the strap off her right shoulder. Betsy Kornhauser is co-curator of a recent exhibition of Sargent portraits at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Now, in this portrait, her strap is not falling off. He decided to paint it back, and he would keep the painting for the rest of his life until he finally offered it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1907. And at the time, he stated that he felt it was his finest work. That's saying something for an artist who, at 23, dazzled Paris with this portrait of his teacher. And at 24, this. And at 25, this a huge portrait of a Playboy Paris gynecologist considered a masterpiece. Sargent is born in 1856 in Florence, Italy to American parents, and he spends his entire childhood growing up in Europe. Stephanie Herdrick is another of the Met Show's curators. So he grows up in a really kind of cultured world, exposed to many different cities, towns, museums. He grows up to be fluent in English, Spanish, French, Italian, and he speaks German. He's a very talented musician in his own right, playing the piano. Think Gilded Age, that glittering era of sophistication and new money at the end of the 19th century. John Singer Sargent painted and lived it. He cultivated commissions from its rich and became famous for his luscious, flattering society portraits, 
which is exactly what critics often held against him. For a very long time, he was defined by his commissioned works, and he was defined by the people that he painted. I think that was very unfair. His reputation, according to Kornhauser, is undergoing a radical reevaluation. John Singer Sargent, beyond being the most talented and celebrated portrait painter of his day, I think looking back in time, we could say that he was one of the greatest artists um, of all time. The evidence? his much more intimate paintings of people within his own circle, many of them provocative or famous cultural figures. So with friends and fellow artists, writers, painters, he didn't need to flatter. Exactly, exactly. He could go deeper, pull out really profound character traits and very often reveal his feelings about the person. He loved painting other painters painting, singers singing, actors acting. We have here Carmen Cita, who was a well-known Spanish dancer in the period. In this portrait of her, he's channeling the old masters, but not in this oil sketch. He's trying to capture her in motion, as Sargent saw her performing in a New York City music hall. Compare it to this 1894 Thomas Edison film. At the time, Sargent's style was considered daring, unconventional, especially his paintings of friends, such as Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of Treasure Island, and the French Impressionist Claude Monet, inside and outside. He's seated on his artist's stool, holding um, a palette, the actual picture Monet was working on is now in the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. The detail that Sargent presents here has become of great significance because it's a pure Impressionist palette. And this was precisely what Sargent was attempting to absorb and embrace at this time. He did so extravagantly, especially once he moved to Britain to recover from the Madame X fiasco. And over time, the go-to portrait painter of his day loses interest in the grand paintings that made his name, preferring people in informal settings. And watercolors, regarded as some of the finest ever painted. In 1907, he makes a formal declaration, I'm not painting any more portraits. Occasionally, he gets lured out of that for a very prominent commission. But he's got other interests in this period, and he's you know, kind of painting what he wants to paint in this period. And yet, 90 years after his death in 1925, it is those extraordinary telling portraits that are treasured all over the world. The strange thing is, John Singer Sargent almost never painted himself. His only self-portraits were commissioned by others and reveal nothing about him. Coming up, we go in search of Jack the Ripper. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A foggy night in Victorian London.
That's the sort of cover the murderous Jack the Ripper would have craved. Even as we prepare for the artificial frights of Halloween, a host of sleuths are investigating the very real terror that gripped London so many years ago. Lee Cowan has been watching them at work. Along the back alleys of London's East End, a booming business lurks in the dark. Jack the Ripper tour, guys. Anybody for the Jack the Ripper tour? Jack the Ripper tour? Yes. Yeah, have you booked him online? Yes. This isn't just for Halloween. Welcome to Whitechapel. <laughs> this macabre gathering happens nightly. A band of the curious following in the very footsteps of London's Victorian villain, Jack the Ripper. If anybody sees a guy with a top hat and a big mustache and a knife about 180 years old, just uh, ignore him, yeah? <laughs> Every night of the week, we're busy. <laughs> what do you think it is? I think it's the mystery, and it's the environment he did it in, the gas lamps and the cobbles and the Victorian London, the top hats, this kind of thing. Mick Priestley is our rather gruesome guy. Somebody had cut a throat deeply in a nine-inch injury across here that was met by a six-inch one running back underneath. It's been 127 years since Jack the Ripper terrorized these streets. Some of the pictures I'm going to show you here are bloody awful. That is Catherine Eddowes in the mortuary. And yet, for many, he's still hiding in history's shadows. I saw the Ripper, he ran down the other end. Hollywood has made the Ripper more myth than man. Top hat and cape shrouded by fog, chased by the likes of Johnny Depp. This is methodical. Butchery is rational, yet meticulous and deliberate. But his crimes are savage in their brutality. His victims were the poor, all women, ladies of the night, prostitutes, who'd taken to the streets of London in desperation. When we talk about the Jack the Ripper's murders, there is an element that we might fall into a situation where we're really glorifying um, violent acts against women. So we have to be a bit careful, I think. Alex Werner is with the Museum of London, one place he says where Jack the Ripper should be on display. Because unlike Sherlock Holmes or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Jack the Ripper was very real. It's one of the most famous crimes of all time, I would say. The murders took place in London's Whitechapel district in late 1888. It's unclear just how many women the Ripper claimed. Most agree it was at least four, probably five, but some say it could have been more. But it wasn't so much his gruesome tally that turned the Ripper into a commodity. It was his coverage in the press. For journalists especially, this was sort of like a, right, we've got something really juicy here to, to, to use to sell our newspapers. Rarely had a crime spree, complete with illustrations, sold papers quite the way Jack the Ripper sold papers. Some people have called it this really the first um, uh, modern crime that is being consumed by readers all around the world. Letters sent to newspapers, purportedly written by the Ripper himself, pushed interest into hysteria. But many believe some of those letters were actually written by journalists, hoping to keep the story in the headlines. Little did they know that over a century later, he'd still be there. As soon as somebody comes along and says, I found Jack the Ripper, everybody wants to know about it. Everybody's interested and he's back in the news again. There are hundreds of ideas about his true identity put forth by so-called Ripperologists. They fill shelves of books. One theory is that he wasn't even a man at all but a woman, year after year, 
they keep on coming. Perhaps my favourite is that Stephen Hawking was Jack the Ripper. <laughs> Crime novelist Patricia Cornwell got into the Ripper game when she claimed to have solved the case back in 2002. She pointed to DNA found on one of the supposed Ripper letters and then traced it back to British painter Walter Sickert, who did in fact have an odd fascination with the Ripper, even painting this, what he titled Jack the Ripper's Bedroom. But critics questioned the case Cornwell made, and to many, Sickert became just another in a long line of theories. There's a massive industry in keeping this a perpetuated myth. It's a big business. It's like the Loch Ness Monster. Russell Edwards, a self-described armchair detective, is the latest to use DNA to chase down the Ripper's identity. He claims Jack the Ripper was a Polish barber named Aaron Kosminski. So how sure are you? I'm 100%. Without a doubt, it's him. Uh, it's definitely him, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's very fragile. The proof, he says, came from this silk shawl, now cut into pieces. He bought it at an auction back in 2007. Wow. Police, he says, retrieved the shawl from the scene of one of the Ripper's most grisly murders, the killing of Catherine Eddowes on September 30th, 1888. So all those white dots are blood? Yep. Edwards hired a molecular biologist at Liverpool John Moores University to conduct the DNA testing on the shawl. When he shows me the actual match, <sighs> overwhelming. He claims there was just enough genetic material left to link it to the victim. He even traced the DNA back to one of her distant relatives. That, he says, proves the shawl was there that night. But the question remained, who else was there? This is where we got the DNA for the Ripper. There was one other stain, one that yielded another kind of DNA. Genetic material, Edward says, matched perfectly the DNA from the relatives of Aaron Kosminski, that Polish barber that he believes was Jack the Ripper. Police actually did consider Kosminski a suspect at the time, but he was never charged. He died in a British asylum largely unknown. We've proved this, you know, all the story absolutely fits like a jigsaw puzzle, you know. Intriguing as all of this may be, critics say the shawl has probably been handled by too many people too long ago, and any forensic evidence they fear has probably been contaminated. At this point, somebody has murdered Marianne Nichols down in Box Row and leaving just enough doubt that for many, on this Halloween anyway, Jack the Ripper, or at least his identity, is still on the loose. I think if we'd caught him, we probably wouldn't be standing here now. I want to see him go fast. We saddle up with Steve Hartman next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. A girl in Connorsville, Indiana, is off to the races. The better to cheer on her favorite horse. Steve Hartman tells us all about it. For as long as her parents can remember, 11-year-old Brianna Carsey has had this crazy dream. Hmm? She has always wanted a broodmare a mommy horse that would give birth to a baby horse that would grow up to become a racing champion. 
Absolutely. This was a fairy tale for her from day one. We put it off for five years almost because we don't have a farm. So we got to go rent stalls somewhere. This sounds expensive. Yeah. Why don't you say no? Well, as she'll tell you, she has me wrapped around her finger. <laughs> her foal, an Ohio standard bred, was born in the spring of 2013. She named it MJB Got Faith. MJB for the initials of the kids in her family and Got Faith for the faith she instantly had in him. I really loved him. From the beginning? Mm-hmm. He's super soft, too. <laughs> Sweet. But that quick bond posed a real problem for this pushover dad. Come here, bud. See, for whatever reason, Brian thought once he explained to his daughter that her horse could never race, that it was a runt from poor breeding stock, she would just agree to sell it. But obviously not. <laughs> She's like, there's no price, Daddy. So I'm talking to my wife, it's like, you know, we really got ourselves in a mess here. Yeah. And I don't know how we're going to get out of this. So we stake him to the races. This horse that doesn't belong in the races. The horse that I thought we should have gotten rid of already. <laughs> he was more about the money. What were you seeing that your dad wasn't seeing? He didn't believe in them. Brian was stuck, committed to boarding and training this long shot to end all long shots. Yep. And this is not a wealthy family. Brian runs a small logistics company, and Ohio Racing, which is harness-style racing, is a $900 million a year industry. I want to see him go fast. MJB Got Faith was so slow he barely even qualified to compete. But then somehow, someway, won his first race. Won his second race, his third, and his fourth, qualifying him for the state championship held recently in Columbus, Ohio. And I said, baby, if you finish third, you should be so thankful. She goes, Daddy, if he finishes last, I'm going to be thankful. But he's going to win. <laughs> and so it was that this little horse with no pedigree, this pet with no reason for being here beyond the blind faith of a little girl, won an Ohio Sire Stakes Championship. She said, Dad, I told you, you got to have faith. Brianna took home $100,000 that day. She has already given away half of it to charity. And as for the other half, she plans to use that money as a down payment on a farm. I just want to have a farm and be able to go walk out my back door and see him. And that's her plan for happily ever after. Just a girl, her horse, and knowing her father. Dad, can we please get a cat? No. Probably a cat. Too. Next, Faith Saley faces up to Donald Trump. Two polls of Iowa Republicans this past week show Ben Carson pulling ahead of Donald Trump. All the same, Trump looms large in the thoughts of our contributor, Faith Saley. First off, apologies, because I'm about to feed the monster and talk about Donald Trump. Not about his politics, but his popularity which may be waning, but is still sizable and worth examining. The Donald seems to be riding a wave of support from people who denounce political correctness. This means they cheer his insults. Our leaders are stupid. Our politicians are stupid. I don't really want to repeat his cruel gems of late, but this man, who's running for the most esteemed position in America, has very publicly disparaged the appearances of, just for starters, Rosie O'Donnell, Kim Novak, Angelina Jolie, Halle Berry, 
and Heidi Klum. Most recently, of course, he said of Republican presidential hopeful Carly Fiorina, look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? I mean, she's a woman and I'm not supposed to say bad things, but really, folks, come on. Fiorina offered an incommensurately classy response. I think women all over this country heard very clearly what Mr. Trump said. This from a man who says, I will be so good to women. I cherish women. I will work hard to protect women. Perhaps he should protect them from his own nasty words. Donald Trump, who surely has lots of high-stakes issues on which to focus, is consumed with the appearance of women. Making fun of people's looks is something that children do, mean children. And in fact, linguists have determined that Trump actually speaks like a third grader. Really, this is bigger than Trump and his ego. Yes, there's something bigger than Trump's ego. Because it's about what we all agree is acceptable on the American political and cultural stage. It's one thing to decry and defy political correctness in the name of efficiently achieving clarity or revealing an honest truth, but it's quite another thing entirely to support name-calling and nastiness. What does that say about us? What does that teach our children? People who champion Trump say they don't want politics as usual. But politic is also an adjective. It means tactful and diplomatic. It's necessary for an elected official to be politic. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. Is this the man we want representing and cherishing us? His language makes him the ugly American. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.